Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those, those from Cilicia and Asia. These were all Greek-speaking Jews. Probably the Freedman Synagogue was a group who'd once been imprisoned by Rome as Jews and who'd come out. They were all now in Jerusalem and uh, they had their own synagogues. And uh, we'll see that Stephen was also a Greek-speaking Jew and uh, they rose up against Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him, seized him, and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him all, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then after the sermon, verse 54, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. That's quite... Quite an account, isn't it? This is um, one of the harder things. I'll be able to lower this a bit if I can. How do I see through that? Can we put that? Would it be better up there? Is that all right? Can you hear me? You can turn that up, can't you? If you need to, or turn me down if you need to. Right. So this, these chapters, chapter six, uh, 6 and 7 of Acts, show us the final day of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. Um, I'm going to ask you. And this is the first time we hear about Stephen. Um, but the impact of this man's life and witness on the early church was huge. 
At the end of chapter 7, uh, we read that those who had stoned Stephen laid their garments. They had to take their coats off. They wanted to be free to do their deadly work. And it takes a lot of effort to stone a man to death. And they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we know that Saul became, he became Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And we know he was converted by that blinding appearance, which you are yet to hear about in Acts, on the road to Damascus, that appearance of Christ. But well before that amazing event, Stephen's witness and death was burnt into Paul's memory. And when Christ asked him on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads are like a prickly, a pointy stick that a farmer would use against the oxen to move the oxen along. And the oxen would kick against the goads. And that's what Paul was doing. And one of those goads, one of those pointy things in his conscience would have been watching the death of Stephen and giving his approval. Stephen's death is the turning point for the church. That experienced opposition, but nothing like what was about to be unleashed. All hell was about to break loose against the believers, and it started with the death of Stephen. But the result was the Jerusalem church that had stayed close together, often meeting in the temple and in house to house, but stayed in Jerusalem when Jesus said, go. Well, suddenly they're tipped out of Jerusalem. They're scattered, and wherever they're scattered, <coughs> they preach the word. <coughs> Sometimes we need to be tipped out of our nests that others might hear and live. So the story of Stephen is a watershed moment in the life of the early church. The old wineskins were never going to handle the new wine of the gospel and of the spirit. From the death of Stephen onwards in Acts, the focus moves away from Jerusalem and increasingly goes out to the nations. And in the words of C.S. Lewis's allegory, Aslan is on the move. I don't know, is Aslan on the move in Lobethal with what's happening here even? In spite of all the setbacks, opposition, hardships they suffered, Christ was building his church. The spirit was moving forward. The word of God was growing. And so we can trust the same presence and power of Christ's spirit among us to make the gospel known. So Acts 6 introduces Stephen, and we didn't read the first part of that chapter. Uh, he's mentioned as one of the seven men chosen to resolve a tension in the early church. We can have a very ideal, idealistic view of the early church, and uh, wonderful things were happening in those days. But they also had tensions, and uh, there was a complaint against the Hebrew-speaking believers, a Greek speaking Jewish believers, followers of Christ, felt that their widows, the widows of their community, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. 
So the apostles, wanting to be free to keep on preaching the word, asked that the full number of disciples were to choose seven men of good character, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. You know, you just didn't have, you know, if you were the preacher or the elder, you have to be full of the spirit and full of, no, they wanted those who were serving to be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Because how could you serve in the body of Christ out of your own wisdom, out of your own strength? And they chose these men to make sure the widows were cared for equally. And it's interesting, they're all Greeks. In their wisdom, in the wisdom God gave them, they chose Greeks so that the problem would be solved, guaranteed, and no one could be blamed. And this is how we hear first of Stephen. Uh, Stephen is top on the list of those who were chosen. But he not only served tables, he didn't feel he needed to limit himself to that particular task in the body of Christ. He began to exercise a powerful ministry of doing great signs and wonders among the people and proclaiming Christ. And if he'd kept to the task he was given, all hell would not have broken loose against the church. Might have been good if he'd stayed in his job description. But no, God had a purpose in all this. We're told he was a man full of grace and power. And that grace and power was seen not only in the signs and wonders that he performed. That's interesting. They did signs and wonders. Stephen did signs and wonders. That's all that's said. They don't, they don't tell you what great signs or wonders he did. He just did them. Christ was confirming that he was still amongst them. But that grace and power was also shown, not just in the signs and wonders, but in the way he faced his opponents. Someone has defined a minister or a preacher as a mild-mannered man standing before mild-mannered people and exhorting them to be more mild-mannered. How's that sound? No, not good. Well, Stephen was not a mild-mannered preacher. He was a man of grace, but he spoke the truth fearlessly. And uh, that's what got up the nose of these other Greek-speaking Jews. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they gave up fighting fairly and instead secretly organised men to accuse him. What was the accusation that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God? Let me just read. And uh, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Well, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place. Well, that's actually what Jesus said, but he was referring to his body. I'll destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And that he'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And I tell you what, if you've got customs, traditions, ways of doing things, and someone comes along and questions them or disagrees with you or wants to change them, you got trouble, particularly in churches, actually. 
I've seen that happen again and again. But you won't have any traditions that are untouchable here at Lobethal, will you? You wouldn't let that develop, would you? So that if someone comes in who does things a little bit differently, you won't get a bit, you know, upset and niggly? That wouldn't happen. I'm sure it won't. Not if Simon's in charge. He won't be in charge. Don't let Simon get in charge. Uh, you want Christ to be in charge of his church, that's what I'm saying. Let the preacher start up before he says anything else. So Stephen knew that this was not going, not going to end well. He could see the writing on the wall. In one sense, he was a dead man preaching. You have a dead man walking, you're on, you're on, prison, on death row in prison. You're going to be put in the chair. And they say, dead man walking, as he walked on his way to the chair. Dead man walking. Well, here Stephen is, he's a dead man preaching. As a dying man, he's preaching to dying men. It's his last sermon. I think he knew that. They were seeking his blood. Like his Lord, he was accused of speaking against the law and against this holy place, the temple. You see, they had an idolatrous devotion to the law. What's going on here? Yeah, no wonder I kept on going further and further. It doesn't happen elsewhere. They were turning these gifts of God against God. The very gifts of God were weaponized, weaponized against the truth. They became tools of the enemy to oppress and control rather than serve the purposes of God. They distorted the true purpose of the law and the temple. You know, God gave us his law and what a gift. But man loves to change God's law and replace it by his own law, then use it to cancel those who won't submit to it. And we see it in our day, don't we? Separate law from God's character and it becomes a burden and a tool to oppress others. So... He's given his chance to speak to these accusations. The high priest said of these things so, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, in many ways, in this sermon, and if you read it, and I'd encourage you to, it, it says nothing that they didn't already know. They would have been looking for something more in his message to accuse him. But there was nothing there. It looks like a, a rehash of Israel's history, of a very potted version. doesn't seem relevant to the accusations. It looks pretty weak and ineffective as a defence. And here's a man full of wisdom and full of the spirit. You'd expect something stronger. But if we come to that conclusion, I think we need to reread the message. When you look a bit closer, you see Stephen is powerfully answering his accusations. And he's not trying to defend himself. His aim is to show them that they are, in, in, they are in fact the ones who have stubbornly refused to obey God's word, not him. 
There are three sacred cows. You know what a sacred cow is? It's a thing that's immune to criticism or questioning. You can't touch a sacred cow. Well, there are three sacred cows, like three pillars. We've got pillars up here. Three great pillars of Judaism in that day. The first sacred cow was the land. And for many Orthodox Jews, it still is. So, he, he, Stephen begins by speaking of how the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, called out of Mesopotamia to a land that he would be shown. So the land is important, Stephen said. He gave him great promises that after 400 years, his descendants would inherit this land. But until that time, they'd been enslaved by a nation that God would eventually judge in order that these people might worship him in this place. So God's relationship with Abraham, Isaac, his son and Jacob were prior to giving of the Mosaic law and the building of the temple. Their faith in his covenant promises was not dependent upon their actual possession of the land. He believed God's promises even before he received one foot of the land. And he had to pay for that. That was going to be a burial site for his family. This is the land God promised as a gift and he had to pay for a tiny little bit of it. You see, God blessed Abraham even though he didn't yet occupy as much as a foot of the Holy Land. The truth of it is that you can be on the premises but not enjoy the promises. Abraham was on the premises and they weren't even his, but he was enjoying the promise. But those who were attacking Stephen, and it wasn't all Jews because many Jews, many priests became obedient to the faith, but there were those Jews who rejected God's purpose. They were on the premises. They were in the land, but they weren't enjoying the promises. Their physical attachment to the... Look, it might be that you're visiting here and you're on the premises. I hope you're enjoying the promises. Because if you're not, it's pointless. Their physical attachment to the land and to the building, no matter how devoted, counted for nothing. And that's why Jesus and Stephen made them so angry. Their hypocrisy was exposed for everyone to see. And later, he tells the story of God appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses, remember, he was told, take off his sandals, he's on holy ground. But where's that holy ground? Not in Canaan, not in Palestine, but on Mount Sinai. In the wilderness. You see, holy ground is wherever God meets his people, not just in the borders of Palestine. And the greatest miracles of Israel took place outside the land, in Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, not in the promised land. One cow down, two to go. The next sacred cow was their confidence in the law and their devotion to Moses. In verse 37, he makes it clear that Moses him, himself had spoken of God raising up another prophet like him. There would be another exodus, but this time led by Christ. 
the Jews' confidence was not to be based on Moses' law, but on the one who was coming, of which the law pointed. He alone could redeem. So Stephen demonstrates that the Jews never listened to Moses anyway. Listen to this, verses 39 to 42. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And they made a calf in those days, verse 41, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the God of their hands. And God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars gave them over to idolatry. They'd turned from the God who had so graciously delivered them from slavery and from Israel. And Israel, we know, stubbornly, like we find ourselves in our own hearts, chase after idols. And so they, they say to, to Stephen, you don't honour Moses and the law that he gave. But in fact, it was Israel who didn't honour Moses and the law that he gave. They never listened to Moses. And the last sacred cow is the temple. And because they had the temple, they were assured that God's favour was upon them. That was their thinking. But Stephen pointed out it was not God who asked David to build a temple, but David who offered to build it. And then God said, no, you're not going to build it. I'll let Solomon but before that, they had the tent of witness, the tabernacle, that mobile, portable temple that could move with them in the wilderness, built according to the heavenly pattern that Moses. You know, if you're, if you're talking about respecting Moses, then remember, he gave a pattern for the tabernacle. God changes the way he moves and how he comes amongst us. Sometimes in the tabernacle, then he concedes to them building a temple and says, my presence will dwell there. But... But his presence couldn't be contained by the temple. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem, that was the third rebuild by the time Stephen was alive preaching this message. It wasn't the original temple that Solomon built in which the glory of God was manifest. You see, and he... Stephen quotes, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You're going to put me in a house? You think that'll contain me? And control me? Don't think that you are not a real church until you get a building that looks like a church building. That's foolishness. You are the temple, actually. You are the living, you are living stones built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. God doesn't live in a house made with bricks and mortar. His purpose ultimately is to fill the whole creation with his glory, but with a people in whom he dwells fully with all his fullness and glory. 
So God had this long-standing living relationship with his people well before and apart from the land, apart from the law of Moses and the temple, all based on his gracious call and promise. The Jews in Stephen's day, they made the law, the temple, the land, their security, their identity. It was all show, outward show. It was all religious pride, boasting in these things. They were doing all the right things that Jews were meant to do. But what was the truth? They were ticking all the boxes, like sometimes we try to do. But their hearts were far from God. Stubbornly so. We can look very Christian in the way we operate, but have no true heart for God. And that's why Stephen infuriated them, because he claimed to have something they didn't have. He had a heart renewed by the power of Christ. What Stephen had come to see so clearly was that their forefathers, before they possessed the land, before Moses received the law, before they established the temple worship with its way of atonement, misread that. What I'm saying is all those things were shadows pointing to the day when the reality would arrive. When Christ arrived, he, he wasn't out, Jesus wasn't out to destroy temple worship just for the sake of it, although he said it would come down in AD 70. It would be destroyed, the whole city, as a judgment of God. He wasn't... A, he was happy for them to meet in the temple when they first came, when the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. It was not the temple itself, it was what was going on in their hearts. And his presence, reality, redemption, what he did in that cross and that resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit, that was the reality. Everything would change and needed to be looked at through that lens of what God has done in Christ. But they would have none of it. They crucified him and they want to kill Stephen. You see, it was always based, not dependent on the gifts, the temple, the law, but on the promises that he gave to those who had no claim on his love. It was always grace received by faith from the beginning and not based on anything that they could boast in or hide behind. Can you see that? That's the gospel. And they didn't want to hear it. And he pointed out too that just as the, the brothers of Joseph rejected Joseph, remember that? They were jealous. And yet Joseph was lifted to a place in Egypt of power so that he could save his family in the famine? And just as they rejected Moses, remember Moses went to help some Jewish slaves who were being oppressed and he actually killed the Egyptian. And the next day he says, they were having an argument, he said, look, don't argue with your brother. Who are you to be made a ruler and a judge over us? You're going to kill us too. <laughs> so they rejected Moses. So just as they rejected Joseph and Moses, now they've rejected who? Jesus. <clears throat> he says, you stiff-necked 
uncircumcised in heart and ears. They loved circumcision. They boasted in it. And here he's saying, you've got an uncircumcised heart. And you've got uncircumcised ears. A covering you can't hear. You can't feel. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. As they rejected their deliverers, Moses, Joseph, so you have rejected Christ. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed. And he, he comes in, doesn't he? He hammers it home. You betrayed him. You murdered him. You who received the law as delivered by angels and didn't keep it. That's a big story, isn't it? And it's a big sermon to read. But can you see how it would have enraged them? Because he brings it all home to their heart and conscience. They were the guilty ones, not him. Stiff-necked, I had a stiff neck all of last year. All through, even through the night, incredible pain. But that was an injury. I was actually using a hard pillow and I've thrown it out and it's all gone. <laughs> Why do we punish ourselves thinking we're doing ourselves good like these people? They were stiff-necked willfully against God's will. Stiff-necked, if you had a stiff-necked oxen, that means the oxen wouldn't go where you wanted to go. They heard God's word over and over but never came under it. They always stood in judgment over it. They used God's word to judge others. You know, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. They never allowed the word of God to melt their own hearts. So what happened in these last moments of his life? Quite incredible. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Persecuted from beginning to end. <laughs> Never come here again. Uh, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus said that you'd see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They would have been furious as they remembered the words of Jesus. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing. Everywhere else it says that Christ is seated above all authority. The right hand. Here he stands. He stands to welcome his faithful witness home. He's standing because he's the one who's upholding Stephen through this terrible trial. He stands. He's in the highest place over every power and authority for the church, for us, in our trials, in our struggles, in our suffering, in the times when people might come against us. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. It's like blasphemy. You know, if I listen to this, this is polluting me. 
They were polluted already. What Stephen was speaking was true. And they rushed together at him and then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Just like that. They stoned him. They cast him out of Jerusalem, out of the holy city. They're saying he doesn't belong. And then they stone him to death. And the, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What an incredible contrast. Men filled and overcome with hatred and rage in contrast to a man utterly overwhelmed by a vision of the glory of God and the authority of Jesus Christ. Yet he could have kept quiet about seeing the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He couldn't hold it in. He needed to speak the truth. You know, um, we're told that without love, even, even giving your body up to be burned means nothing. It means nothing. But Jesus, but Stephen was a man of love right to the end. Even though he could speak the truth with a, with a righteous, not self-righteous, but with a righteous indignation, at the hard-heartedness of those who opposed him. He still loved them. And he asked God not to hold this against them. The beautiful story uh, in uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. A story told of a, um, a Maasai warrior named Joseph, and it was shared at an uh, itinerant evangelist conference in Amsterdam some years ago. This... Uh, Maasai warrior was walking along an African dirt road and he met someone who shared the gospel. And he accepted Christ there and then, just like that. Just like the, um, the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, Philip met on the road. And uh, the power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to return to his village and share the same good news with the members of his tribe. And he went from door to door telling everyone about the cross of Christ and salvation. And he expected them, their faces to light up the way his had, but they didn't. They became violent the men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women used barbed wire to beat him. And he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Somehow he man man managed to drag himself to a waterhole and after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He couldn't work out why the hostility. People who had known him all his life he thought he must have left something out of the story. So he returned 
He rehearsed the message and he returned to share his faith once more. He limped into the circle of huts. He began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. Again, they grabbed him. The women beat him, reopening the wounds. They dragged him again outside the village to die. Somehow he lived through this again. Again, days later, he awoke, bruised, scarred. He was determined to go back. He's a, you know, what happens when someone gives us trouble? We want to go the other way. Leave them. Forget it. No, what did Jesus say? Go back. Go to your brother. Go back. And he went back to his whole village. And they attacked him before he opened his mouth. They flogged him for the third and probably the last time as he spoke to them of Jesus Christ, before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. We don't know the outcome there will be suffering. If we are faithful to Christ, there will be opposition. We may not see martyrdom in our state as it happens all over the world in other countries. But things can get nasty. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. All evil is out to destroy the church and to stop the gospel going out. He'll do everything to divide us or to oppress us, discourage us. Peter said, when you insulted for the name of Christ, rejoice and be glad, the spirit of glory, just as it rested on Stephen, rests on us. We're not to give up. We're to, to go on loving, to bear all things, and to not, not let fear shut us up. Doesn't mean we go out Bible bashing. We don't have to preach out loud at it. We'd be willing to give a defence of the hope that is within us, yet with gentleness and respect. And we might meet people who will not accept Christ, but we will also meet those who will gladly receive the word of God and be saved. So take courage from Stephen and his great witness to us all. Let's pray. Let's pray. Now, dear Father, we live in a different time, a different day. And Lord, it's sometimes hard to make the connections between what we're reading in Acts and what's happening in our own lives, our own church. Things seem so different. And yet, Lord, there are moments when our when we wake up and we realise, no, no. Things are happening around us and in us and against us sometimes that, are, that show how fierce the battle is and the hatred. And uh, We don't have to have a martyr mentality. We just simply need to serve and love you and love and serve other people and, and bear witness as you enable by your spirit and there'll be trouble. In this world you will know tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Thank you, Lord, that you stand. You're seated 
for us in that place of authority and you stand to strengthen us as Lord so that we might be your people and be unafraid. And thank you, Father, that it's you by your grace, <clears throat> by your calling and by your promise that we are secured, that we are sustained, that we walk in fellowship and love and worship with the living God. So we bless you this day for all your goodness and for the word that goes on working in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.